has been called the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty. Magna Carta was something that was signed in England in the year 1215. It guaranteed the English political liberties, the liberties of due process for the common man, uh, liberties uh, against unlawful imprisonment, rights of the church. It, it was They were liberties for the common person. It was the really the foundation of the Constitution of, of the United States. Well, the word liberty or freedom is found in Galatians 11 times, more than more than all of the other letters of Paul combined. When we come to the book of Galatians, there are, there are many who would say the, the key verse in Galatians is chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. That is a key verse in, in Galatians. The, re, the Reformers use Galatians to... Uh, show that Christ sets us free because salvation comes by grace alone through Christ alone plus nothing. Christ plus anything else equals nothing. Christ plus nothing equals everything. Christ plus anything equals slavery. Christ plus nothing equals freedom. Unfortunately, for, for us, we live in, an, in a period of history that, that really downplays um, the idea of, of um, freedom. And what I mean by that is that freedom is used to downplay obedience. That we are free means we are free to do whatever we want. And we talk about uh, relationship versus religion and uh, we say Paul was more interested in in uh, being than doing. That what is important is who we are. Who who we are is is greater than what we do. But if we if we look at Galatians that way, we we can misuse, I believe, this idea of freedom because in Scripture, obedience is always life giving. My burden is light, Jesus says. Command in Scripture always gives life. It is, it is life-giving. To walk with the Lord in obedience is life-giving. To walk in disobedience is to walk in a very dangerous place. So perhaps we have misunderstood the idea of freedom, and, and we'll talk about that as well as we walk through um, the letter of Galatians. Galatians was Martin Luther's favorite epistle. It was the banner of the Reformation. He said this about Galatians. The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it I were as it were in wedlock. It is my Catherine. Catherine being his wife's name. Now I don't know that I will ever speak of Galatians in, in those words. He was fighting a severe battle. I don't know if uh, we'll go away thinking... Um, you know, Galatians is my Diana or my Diane or, or Galatians is my Barbara or my Patsy or I don't think any of the men will do that. But perhaps when we're done with the book of Galatians, maybe we'll say, you know, Galatians was my ribeye steak. 
that I really like. I got my teeth into it. It tasted good. And it, it is my ribeye steak. Perhaps we'll come to that point. But I think there are really just four words that, that will help us understand the full scope of, of Galatians. Christ, cross, freedom, and love. That Christ is the center of Galatians. The cross is the symbol of Galatians. Freedom is the goal of Galatians. And love, when we get to the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, that is the evidence of Galatians. That is the evidence that we know who is in the center of Galatians. A little bit about the book, Galatians is, it's, it's Paul's first epistle, probably written to the churches along the roads of his first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14. Churches of like Iconium or, or Lystra or, or Derby, some of those early churches. James is the first uh, New Testament letter. This is not the first, it's, it's Paul's first letter. James is the first letter. And, and what was the theme of, of James? We went through that a number of years ago, several years ago now. Uh, in James, salvation follows is followed by works. That works follow salvation. The, the key verse in James, faith without works is dead. So works follow sal salvation. But when we come to Galatians, the theme is works do not cause salvation. So it gives us a balance that works follow salvation, but works do not cause salvation. Works do not cause us to be saved. Grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone. This letter was written because there were some who were saying that, yeah, salvation is by grace through faith, but not, not faith alone. The gospel is faith plus works. Now, this is not, this is not Paul's... Um, this is not his crowning work on theology. That will come five or six years later after the writing of Galatians when he, writes, when he writes the letter to the Romans. Galatians is not a systematic theology where we could just walk through and say these are the parts of, of theology. It's not an academic uh, book. It was necessary because of something that was going on as a battle for the true gospel in these churches. There were some Jewish Christians who were following behind Paul. They're, they've been called Judaizers. We, we know that word from uh, past reading of, of Galatians, or perhaps you've heard sermons on, on Galatians. These were actually people who said, we have faith in Christ, but there's something else that needs to be added. And so the battle was on, and these, these Jewish Christians would follow Paul, and they professed Christ, but they wanted Christ to be Jewish. They wanted Christ, uh, Christianity to be part of Judaism. 
And so they introduced circumcision, and then they introduced the ceremonies, and then they introduced the, the rituals of Judaism. They imposed Old Testament, uh, Old Testament laws on new believers, Gentiles. Gentiles who knew really nothing uh, about Judaism. There was never a question about Paul's teaching. If we just... Um, were to read Romans, or we could even look at Romans chapter 4, verse 5. He simply says this, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul's theology was crystal clear. That is, that is a summary of the gospel. Salvation comes to the one who does not work, but has faith in Jesus Christ. This was, a, this was a battle that Paul fought his entire life after he became a believer. Philippians chapter 3, which was another uh, letter of Paul, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you as no trouble to me as it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Now, that's the worst um, criticism you could give of anyone. This is not talking about the pets, as we've talked about before. This is talking about the dogs who live, who live in the junkyard, who are dangerous for little children who are running around on their own. He says, look out for the dogs, for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, we are the true circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Jesus Christ and put no confidence in in the flesh. This was a, an ongoing battle for Paul, and it all, begins, it all begins with the Galatians. And he's fighting the dogs, he's fighting the Judaizers, and he's saying, we are the true circumcision. And another interesting, just kind of an interesting fact about Galatians is that it is the only letter that Paul writes. It's his first letter, but it's the only one that has no word of thanksgiving for the, for the church or, or no commendation for the church. He is, he is angry and he is in a mad rush to attack the error that is happening in the church of Galatians. That's why he says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which, by the way, is no gospel at all. He is angry, and he is, he is on the defense, and he's on the attack. In chapter 4, uh, verse 17, he says this. He, in chapter 4, verse 17, this is what I meant. The law, uh, chapter 4, verse 17, he says this. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Chapter 5, verse 10, he says this about them. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And then he gives the reasons why they're doing this. In chapter 6, verse 12, he says this. It is, it is the circumcised... And only in order, 
It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Why are they doing this? Because they want to avoid persecution of the Jews who have not accepted the Messiah, and they want to say, look what we have done. We have brought them into Judaism. We have made them Jews. That's what Paul is fighting, and so he must defend himself, and he does that in chapters 1 and chapter 2. He defends himself, and in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he, he gives his full message. And in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he gives us the application. What is the practical outworking of, of, and of what they are to do? And this is where love comes into play as, as the evidence. But Paul is defending himself because, remember, there was no New Testament. There, was, there were no words of Paul. How did Paul know? How did the Galatians know that Paul was true? They couldn't turn to the book of Galatians. They couldn't turn to Ephesians or Philippians or, or Colossians or any of his writings. His authority was critical. He has to establish his authority to fight those who are fighting against him. Those teachers had denounced his message. They had denounced Paul. Perhaps they had said, Paul's not a true apostle. Look at the apostles. He's not one of those. And so he's going to have to defend himself. And he, in the very first five verses, he begins to, to lay down the things that he's going to talk about. And in these five verses, we, we're going to see three truths that Paul must establish. He must establish if he's going to win the fight for the gospel. If Paul loses this battle, if he loses this war, then the gospel will be distorted. The gospel will be no gospel at all. So there are three truths that he must establish to rescue the gospel of Christ plus nothing. Those three truths are this. He's got to establish his apostolic authority. He's got to establish the integrity of the gospel. And he's got to establish his, his biblical worldview, why he's saying the things he's saying. He's saying, and he does that in the first five verses. So let's look at those in the, time that, in the time that we have. First of all, his apostolic authority. It begins this way, Paul an apostle, Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Who is Paul? Who is this apostle? Apostolic authority is, is critical. The teachers had denounced his message. You know, this is not the true message. This is part of the message. But this is the rest of the message. They had denounced his apostleship. Paul's an apostle. We know that word. It's sit one. It's a, it's a messenger. And for the readers and for the Galatians, that word would be a word of authority. It is in... Uh, political life, an envoy, a, a delegate, a, um, an ambassador. We have ambassadors we send around the world. They have the, they have the authority and the word of the president. 
It's a special representative on behalf of a king or on behalf of, of the government. And Jesus chose 12 men to be apostles, to be those sent with his authority. There's something we need to realize that when we're reading a letter like this, it's as though we're, we're listening to the one side of a telephone conversation. We don't know everything that these Judaizers are saying against Paul, and we assume some things that they're saying, not from men nor, by, nor through man. They're saying he was sent by men. He wasn't sent by God. He was sent by men. He's not a, he's not a real apostle. There's another thing that we need to realize, too, as we read uh, a letter, or any letter in the New Testament, really. Um, Paul is sending this, and he wants someone to read this to them. They weren't able to say, okay, turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians and read this. This was something that would be read to them by someone. Imagine what that does to you as a disciple when you're reading, you're hearing this letter from Paul. There's a mixed congregation. There are Jews, these Judaizers possibly, and there are Gentiles. The Judaizers would call themselves missionaries. I'm sure you know, in their minds they were doing a good thing. There would be a conflict that when Paul reads this, there would be a conflict going on. And so Paul, as, a, as an apostle, has to defend himself as they say, look at him, he's not one of the 12. He didn't see, he didn't walk with Jesus before he was crucified. He didn't see Jesus after he was crucified, though he did, didn't he? He's got a trump card on them there. I saw him not only after he was crucified, but after he was resurrected, I saw him. He wasn't chosen by Christ. He didn't even know Christ. Paul is probably under the authority of some uh, people like Barnabas or some of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. He doesn't have the word of Christ. But he says, not from men nor through men. It wasn't the idea of men. It wasn't the recommendation of one man. In fact, I persecuted the church. No one would talk to me in the beginning. But they did confirm my apostleship. As a matter of fact, in chapter 2, verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to me and to Barnabas. They recognized that Paul had a calling from the Lord. His ministry wasn't confirmed by a second-hand uh, person. It was confirmed by the Lord, and Paul plays his, he's got one card to play, but it's a, it's a good one. It's the God card. You know, if you don't like it, you can take it up with God. Because I saw God on the road to Damascus. He called me to be an apostle to the Gentiles. This letter is full of emotion, and you can almost sense it even in the very first lines. And he said, you know, not only that, not only was I called by God, all the brothers who are with me. It's not unusual for Paul to mention 
other people are with him, but it is a bit unusual that he, he, he mentions no one's name here. Usually he will mention uh, someone's name, but he doesn't do that here. And I think that really adds strength to what he was saying. You know, I wasn't called by anyone, not even the brothers here, but, but you know what? They have accepted this message and you are not alone. And you have brothers all around uh, Asia Minor who believe this gospel of Christ alone. It's easy for us to um, read this quickly and say all the brothers with me and we read right over the word uh, brothers. Uh, it's easy to overlook because it's so familiar. But it is a special word. It is a, a word that, that has a sense of family. It has the sense of unity. And he says, you have brothers. You have those who are in unity with the gospel. And I am an apostle. And he will go on to prove that in later in chapter 1 and chapter 2 in more details. But right at the beginning, in the very first line, he proves himself. He, he defends himself as being an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says to the churches in Galatia, no further description. Not holy ones, not saints, not God's people. No, no commendation. You know, if we were to read even um, Romans chapter 1, which Paul's going to write just a few years later. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart by God, uh, by, set apart for the gospel by God. That, that's, that's who he is. He goes on and says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and, and by saints, grace and peace to you. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I thank God for you. In Ephesians, Ephesians right after the book of Galatians, he writes to them and he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you. Blessed be the God of our Lord, of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in ev with every spiritual blessing. And goes on and says, in him we have obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose. And he goes on and he says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers. There's none of that in the book of Galatians. There's no thanksgiving. There's no commendation. And if Paul is right, if Paul is right that he has been commissioned by Jesus Christ and God the Father, then when they reject Paul, they reject God. When they misinterpret Paul, they misinterpret God. When we reject Paul, we reject God. When we, when we misinterpret Paul, we misinterpret God. That's why the study of Scripture is so critical and the teachings and the preaching of the word is so critical. We have the very words of God through the writers of Scripture. Peter talks about that in First or Second Peter chapter one, verse twenty-one. And he says, "Men were moved along by God to give us the word of God." You know, it's not easy studying the word of God, but it is so important. It's also so neglected in, in, many, in many churches that we have 
a love letter written from God to us that we at times don't study. We need to we need to just understand that we have the word of God and you know what we all go through those times when when we have a hard time studying the word don't we? If you think that during those times that God thinks less of you than he did when you were studying then you are guilty of what Paul is preaching against in the book of Galatians. You are adding to uh, the gospel. The study of the word of God does not make us any more right with God than not studying the word. But we have been given a gift. We have been given the word. The world does not have the truth. We have the truth to study, but not only to study, there are no apostles, big A, uh, this in, in, in our time. But there are sent ones. And we are of those sent ones. And we have the truth. So to whom are we sent? And to whom is God calling us? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What is his message? Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a typical greeting. The, the Greek letters were greetings. The word greeting and the word grace are, are very similar, and, and it seems like this has become the Christian uh, greeting in a letter. But I think it plays a significant role for Paul. Paul is saying grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the source of salvation. Peace is the result of salvation. Peace is not a, he's not wishing you, a, you know, have a quiet, um, happy little, no problem life. He's wishing them the fullness of God's eternal shalom. May everything in your life go well. Grace is all the blessings of God. May all the blessings of God be to you. And peace is the enjoyment of all of those blessings. May you know the blessings of God and may you enjoy the blessings of God in your life. We're saved by grace into eternal peace. Now how does that happen? He goes on and he says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Mark 10, 45 says, Jesus did not come to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a sacrifice. He gave his life to deliver us from the present evil age. He served us by giving his life for our sins. He took our place. He was our he was our propitiation is the big word we use. He took our place on the cross. He served us by dying for the sake of our sins. That's a model for us, isn't it? Jesus is a model for us. He served us. We are to serve one another. We are to serve others. He's a model for the Christian life, a Christian life of, of service, of sacrifice, of, of giving, Generous, selfless love. He's going to talk about that in the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is really a, 
a measurement of our Christian life. I think the key verse of Galatians, I, I like 5.1, but I think the key verse is chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know there are some this morning, you, you, have, you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, but the gospel that, that Paul begins in, the just, in verses 3 and 4 are critical for your life to understand that Jesus gave himself for our sins. He, he took on the sin, our sins, and he freed us from the condemnation of sin. And that's why we celebrate this morning the bread and the cup. That is the sacrifice that we remember. And that is now, you know, it's not only that we're saved by that gospel, but that is the gospel we are to live. So whether or not you are not a believer, you've never trusted Christ, or whether you have been a believer for 50 years, we need this gospel of salvation that is offered to us through Paul's letter to the Galatians. Why is Paul so exercised about this? Well, that brings us to the third point. Third point is Paul's uh, biblical worldview. Paul's worldview is shaped by the cross. He says this, uh, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, for Paul the cross and resurrection go together. But then he says this in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us, and here it is, from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. To deliver us from the present evil age. This is a key point in understanding the letter of Galatians. Because the cross was a rescue mission. He delivered us. It's a word that means to rescue us. He rescued us from what? He rescued us from the present evil age. We were snatched out of the present evil age and we were transferred to a new age. The Jews had this idea that they didn't quite catch all of it. The Jewish expectation was, they, they understood that we live in a reign of sin. We live in the present evil age. Satan is the enemy. People die. People get sick. That was not God's original intention. But we live in that age. That is the age, the present evil age. The prophets look forward to the day when, when the Lord would return and he would judge the wicked and he would save his people you can read Isaiah, you can read Jeremiah, you can read Ezekiel. Probably the most uh, famous passage relating to this is Jeremiah chapter 33. Verse 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the Mosaic covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write my I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's what the Jews expected. But what they did not expect was that one day, that, that one day was going to be split into two parts. And if, we re, if you read apostolic preaching, and we talk about this, we talk about the, the already and the not yet, that the moment of the cross... This day of judgment, this day of the Lord has come. Salvation has already come. But the evil age is not totally done away with, is it? The apostles, they still look to the fullness of Christ to come, the fullness of judgment, the fullness of resurrection. There's already in, in the not yet. Judgment has come, but it will come in full. All that to say that is that the church lives in between those times, that unpredicted overlap of the ages. We feel the effect of both of those ages. We're fully wrapped up in the present evil age, but now God has, has put to death that age and has put us into a new age. And Paul says all of that for a reason. You see, I think we, we see our salvation as salvation happened to me. And so now I need to go to church with other people whose salvation has happened to, and we need to study and learn more about our salvation. And that is true. But for Paul, he sees something more cosmic. That salvation is not something that just happened to individuals. It happened to an entire age. That's why he says in, in Ephesians, when he talks about spiritual armor, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It, it's against principalities. It's against the cosmic, cosmic reign of evil. And Paul is saying he has taken us from that present evil age. Why is that important? Well, in Paul's day, Judaism was shaped by that present evil age. Humanly constructed prejudices. Humanly constructed means of coercion. Value, value based uh, on, on genders. And I'm not talking about our kind of gender, but male and female. There was a patriarchy. There were ethnicity levels. And Paul says there are no more Jews, there are no more Greeks, there are no more slaves, there's no more free. Christ gives value to everyone. And we are crucified to that evil age. And Paul says, I don't live in that age. I live in the new age. And if you live in the new age, there are certain behaviors that you have in the new age. Because this new age has, has new ways of thinking, new ways of of acting, new ways of understanding salvation. So what's happening in this greeting? What is Paul getting to? He says, God, the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. That's an unusual greeting. 
As a matter of fact, it's the only greeting where Paul uses that. But he's saying that resurrection, that cross, that act of death and resurrection. You know, resurrection for, for the Jew was not, you know, um, I'm just going to be raised, my body's going to be raised. It was a holistic way of looking at life. It was a, a cosmic transformation. And for Paul, resurrection means a new way of thinking. It means a new way of life. It means Christian existence in everything. And he's saying, you need to understand salvation by what Jesus has done on the cross. Now we have Christian communities. We relate to one another in a different way than the world relates to each other. We relate to the world in a different way than the world relates to each other. All of the aspects of life Paul says now are to be lived in this new age. The politics of the church are to be politics of grace. Unfortunately, many in the church are are like the world, and it doesn't always work out that way. But he says you have a choice. You can live in this present evil age, which you have been snatched out of, or you can live in the new age. For us, what does all this mean? It's true an apostle is a personal representative of Jesus Christ. If that is true, then it means that this message comes from Paul. Paul's message needs to be accepted as authoritative in our life. That means there are two choices. A Christ plus gospel, which is no gospel at all, or a Christ only gospel, having the spirit that guides us in ways that conform to the the law and to the fulfillment and the transformation of law. That is, we either choose to live in the evil age or we choose to live in the new age. And you can choose Christ or you can choose Moses. You can choose the spirit or you can choose the law. You can choose faith or you can choose works of the law. You can choose promise or you can choose law. You can choose blessing or you can choose cursing. You can choose a new creation or you can choose circumcision. Grace or law. Or you can choose the Christian church or you can choose the Jewish nation. And Paul is saying the law belonged to the present evil age. And God has snatched us out of that. Martin Luther put it this way. Either Christ must live and the law perish, or the law remains and Christ must perish. Christ and the law cannot dwell side by side in the conscience. It is either grace or law. To muddle the two is to eliminate the gospel of Christ entirely. Two ways of life, two ways of thinking. The present evil age, or the age of grace, the age of of the cross. The question is, where will we find our freedom and what will our freedom look like? Chapter 5, verse 1 again says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Nothing 
that adds to the gospel. It is a choice, a choice of the present evil age or a choice of the new age. And Paul says, I have been snatched from the, from the present evil age. I live for Christ in the new age. May we, as we begin looking at Galatians, understand exactly what Paul is, is talking about when he talks about the things that are added to the gospel. 